Could you kindly open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, please? This morning, as you have heard, we are starting on a series which will run for several weeks, probably covered two months, uh, as we preach and then in between of those uh, sermons on the distinctives, um, and we can say distinctives that identify Living Your Bible Church as a church that has particular beliefs, uh, we intersperse that obviously around our other meetings, so this will take a little while, and uh, those of you who can't wait, to get back, can't wait to get back into Colossians, neither can I, but I'll have more time to prepare for that and for you to pray for me for that. So this morning, let's start our distinctives that we teach by looking at the distinctive of baptism and as a, a segue into this sermon, I want to go to a extremely well-known portion of God's Word in the Gospels, and it's the seminal verse on believers' baptism, as we're going to preach this morning, as found in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 28, <coughs> and verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. <clears throat> and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I want you to keep this verse in your mind, in your head, in your heart as we go through the sermon this morning because it is extremely noticeable as you go through teaching on baptism, how this forms a framework, the basis, the foundation of all other texts we look at. And we'll keep coming back to things that are said in this verse, in these verses, in this commission, in this commandment, as we look at other verses concerning baptism as we teach it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that is here and given to us so that we can understand the life to which we have been called. We know that, all that it is, it's your word that has led us to salvation. It's your word that continually, continuously brings us to points of sanctification in our lives. It's because of your word, which is truth, that we are sanctified. It's because of your word that we learn to understand the things that we are called to do and are required to do and the commands we are required to follow and the obedience we need to display to you by obeying your word. We pray this morning that you will give us understanding. We pray for our hearts that will receive your word with joy and will be prepared to commit your word to our lives through, both, through obedience. We pray that both preacher and hearers alike may learn, grow, be sanctified, and become more and more like our Savior. We pray for this in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. As with everything which we preach, we try and give context to what we are going to preach and so this morning I want to really set out and start looking at, uh, just briefly, um, at the context into which the teaching of 
baptism falls. And uh, to get there, I'm going to go via a verse which uh, Paul records in his second epistle to the Corinthians. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And many of you may be wondering why go there when speaking about baptism. Well, the church uh, in Acts exhibits this exactly. For as we are growing into uh, this image of the one who loves us, into the, into the image of the Lord, and as we are being transformed daily, we are being transformed only because the word of God is being applied to our lives. We ask, how do we conform to his image? That's how we conform to his image, by obeying God's word. As the word of God is revealed to our hearts, and, our, and as the Holy Spirit illumines our minds, and, we, and illumines the page rather to our minds, and we understand what is required of us, then we are being transformed more and more into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so as we grow, we reflect Christ in our lives. And one of the things we have to understand is what is distinctive about the church that makes them or makes us or makes it look like Christ. And the church in Acts 2, that, 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 that the church that was just newly born, I'm not sure about today, but I remember when I was growing up and I was kind of almost just knee-high to a grasshopper, as they say. And my sister was born, who is uh, several years younger than me. But I was old enough to hold her in my arms. I remember her smelling like a baby. She smelled like uh, Elizabeth Ann and baby powder, and the whole house smelled like a baby. Because it was a newborn in the house. Well, Jerusalem smelled like a baby. Maybe not to the Jews, but to the church. This was a newborn church. Still covered in Elizabeth Ann and baby powder. Brand spanking new. This was a new church. And they were very quickly growing into the image of Christ. A Christ they had just found. How do we know that? Because in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the word. And the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So they were slowly doing that which the church is required to do. And by doing that, they were growing more and more in this image. And they were growing more and more like the Savior. And they're doing that which is required of a church to do in every age to grow. Churches do not remain static. Churches cannot stand still where they are. We need to grow. If we do not grow... We are not living in sanctification. That's what sanctification does. It drives us to growth. Look what they did. And when we take this together, they, 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 they studied the word. They, they were engaged in the fellowship. They were participating in the breaking of bread, uh, which is also part of the worship. And they were uh, engaged in the prayers. It's amazing how, uh, as Luke writes that, he turns all those things that we often turn into verbs, into nouns, because that's what they were engaged in. That identified them. And so these things, when taken together, is very often called means of grace. And they're called means of grace as God uses these means to bring blessing, to strengthen faith, and to cultivate spiritual growth in the lives of people. 
To this list of means have been added things like discipline, church discipline, and baptism. And it's by appropriating, by being associated with these things and being actively engaged with these provisions of grace that believers are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We don't, we often say, if only God gave us a plan for our life. He has. We have a plan for our life. It's called the scriptures. And as we follow that plan, our lives take shape and we grow and we become more matured and we get better understanding. And the more we grow and the more we mature, the more we realize how little we know. And so we keep growing. I mean, I'm sure many of you say, as I so often say, I only wish I, I, only wish I knew today as much as I knew when I was 15 and 16. But life has taught me that, no, we grow, and as we grow, we need to learn more. So this church was a growing church. It was a living church. It was a vibrant church. It was a church that, despite its, its conflict and persecution, was determined to be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And of these seven means of grace, only two are considered to be an ordinance, namely baptism and the breaking of bread. There are only two ordinances that we are commanded to obey. And failure to do so results in the believer being guilty of disobedience. If we don't do these things, we are disobedient. And we all know that disobedience is a, a sin and not even a, a respectable one. It's one that is flagrantly pushed into the face of God. And if we don't obey these things, we are disobedient. So, I know there are many people here who have come to be part of this fellowship, either as a member or as a visitor, who come from backgrounds where different words are used. First, and I'm going to go through that very briefly so we get an understanding of what we are going to get this morning. An ordinance and not a sacrament. We are adhering to an ordinance and not a sacrament. Churches that adhere to the Christian faith conduct certain ceremonial rites. Denominations differ on what these rights mean. Now, don't be scared of the word right. Carl uh, Hargrove said to us on Monday, I think it was, don't be scared to use words that other people use just because you think it's always got a bad connotation. Now, right is simply a ceremony that a church adheres to that defines them. You will know what are the distinctives of the church. You look at what they do. So a right, I've used it here, purely to differentiate between ordinance and sacrament or bring them into the same discussion. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and a few Protestant churches or denominations refer to these rites as sacraments. They attach to these rites the capacity or the power to effectively or efficiently convey divine grace, and they make them essential to salvation, which is not what we hold to. We are an evangelical church, and most evangelical churches, on the other hand, prefer the word ordinance, which can be defined as a God-ordained ceremony, and which plays no active part in salvation. So let's get it straight right from the beginning, from the get-go. If you believe you must be saved, to be, you must be baptized to be saved, there's no such teaching in Scripture. And we will try and point that out to you this morning. And although uh, popular dictionaries will use sacrament and ordinance synonymously, uh, they differ vastly in practice. But not only are they different in name, they're actually different in content. So... Roman Catholicism and other Orthodox faiths, uh, they have seven sacraments, and they adhere to these sacraments in a very specific way. They have baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. And according to the Catholic Church, these sacraments, including baptism, are efficacious signs of grace 
instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. They are saying that these sacraments are essential to salvation. In fact, it's spelled out in the catechism. The catechism of the Catholic Church says this, the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenants are necessary for salvation. That is a, a position that's not only diametrically opposed to what we believe, but it is millennia separated from where, what, what we believe. This teaching reveals a work-based system of salvation and a sacerdotal approach to worship. A sacerdotal approach means they, they depend on a priesthood, a very select group of men who they believe have been equipped to pass on this means of salvation through the application of the catechism. Listen to what the Lord says uh, as he inspires Titus to write in chapter 3 of his, uh, inspires Paul to write to Titus in chapter 3 of that epistle. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that washing of generation of regeneration is not the same word as baptism, so don't get hung up on that. It's a different word. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. No works-based salvation. It's nothing that you and I can do. Not even baptism or participating in the breaking of bread can save us. So, what about the evangelical and Protestant churches? Unfortunately, evangelical churches have muddied the waters by disagreeing about what, amongst themselves, by disagreeing about what actually constitutes an ordinance. And so even the evangelical church has been caught up in this confusion, and they've brought into the list of ordinances, together with the Lord's Supper, which is often called communion, and baptism, they've included things like foot washing and marriage and the right of praying for the sick. So they said these are also ordinances. Well, what is Living Hope Bible Church's position on the ordinances at Living Hope Bible Church? And I'm using this because we are trying to help you understand whether you are a visitor, a new member, an old member, a disillusioned member, a member that's gone complacent. These things need to be brought to attention every time. And if you are none of those above and you are really in touch with everything, keep praying that the rest of the church is in the same place, growing slowly in the image of Christ. At Living Your Bible Church, we consider only two of these to be ordinances, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper or, or the breaking of bread. And the reason that only these two are considered to be ordinances is because these are the only two ordinances in that list that evangelicals espouse that reflect the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The others don't. They are uh, outcomes of that. There are applications of that, but only the baptism and the breaking of bread reflects in a very um, um, beautiful way that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again. And that's why those are the ordinances that we espouse, that we adhere to, and that we do every time we have a chance to do it. As often as we can, we break bread. And as often as someone asks us to be baptized, we will baptize them. So today, we are considering uh, the ordinance of baptism. Why talk about baptism? I was asked a question this morning, as uh, just before the sermon, why I chose the title, What We Teach About Baptism. Well, 
if I just say we're going to speak about baptism, uh, it opens the door to a lot of things. But if you ask different people what is baptism, you will see from what the sermon that they will have different answers. But we want to make you understand what we teach about baptism. This is the distinctive that we adhere to, which we think is important. And I do think it's important. I do not think it's a non-essential. I do not think it's something we can put aside and say, well, maybe it should not be a divider. I don't believe it should divide, but I do think it's important. Why talk about baptism? Contrary to common opinion, baptism is not a simple subject and it's often misunderstood. One reason for this is that there are baptisms that are physical in nature and there are baptisms that are spiritual in nature. So when you see the word baptism in the Bible, you need to look very carefully at the context, you need to look very carefully at the subject being taught, who it's referring to, and what it is teaching. For instance, to see this difference, we can go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. And there we see John the Baptist is speaking. John the Baptist says this, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, John's baptism, and we can't unpack it this morning, is not the same as what we are uh, practicing post-Pentecost uh, in the church, but it's still a water baptism. It's still a baptism where a physical body is put into natural, is put into natural water as a symbol of association. So John says, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that specific uh, phrase, Holy Spirit and fire, obviously reminds of Pentecost. And the fire baptism never happens again, but the Holy Spirit ha baptism happens every single time a person is born again in Jesus Christ. Every time you're born, you're baptized. You don't have a choice. It happens to you whether you like it or not when you are saved. So there are different types of baptisms. There's one that is in water, physical and real. There's one that's in the Holy Spirit, that's spiritual and also real. Secondly, the scriptures refer to different baptisms such as John and his disciples baptizing. That's in John 3.23. We read about Jesus and his disciples baptizing. And there seems to be some conflict by the, amongst the disciples as to whose baptism is, is valid. John chapter 3 again. We read about, about people being baptized into Moses in 1 Corinthians. So there seems to be different ways that baptism is phrased in the scripture. And that also adds to confusion if we're not careful to see what baptism is being spoken about and why it's important to understand it. We've chosen to preach on baptism today because, number one, of its frequent occurrence in the scriptures, therefore requiring attention. We should not ignore baptism as a secondary doctrine. It's mentioned over 70 times in the New Testament. Not always about believers' baptism, but baptism as an act of identification is embedded in the New Testament. We need to grapple with it, understand what it means, and when we need to be obeying it, and when we need to see it applied to someone else or something else. It's important. We don't just pass it over. Because it is a significant inclusion of, in our statement of faith and the distinctive of living a Bible church. That's the second reason why we are preaching this today, because we want you to know when you read our statement of faith, we want you to read our statement of faith. When you apply for membership, we want you to read our statement of faith. When you apply for baptism, make sure you understand our statement of faith. Because one of the things we are going to highlight in our statement of faith is that we believe in baptism by immersion, post-salvation, for every believer who wants to be part of the body of Christ in the physical sense. 
Number three, because there are many new members who have come from churches where there is a different understanding, actually a misunderstanding of baptism. Number four, because of the resistance of some believers to being baptized, maybe because of a lack of understanding of the significance of baptism. So there's many reasons, including these, why we need to preach about baptism, and we do so this morning. So we often hear people speaking about the mode of baptism. What is the mode of baptism? Well, water baptism is part of the process whereby a person becomes a member of a church. But water baptism does not look the same in every denomination. Every one of the so-called Christian faiths, they use the mode of water baptism to bring people into a church. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and High Anglicans, and all those who are of that denomination, or their denominational persuasion, these churches practice what's called infant baptism, where they either sprinkle or pour water over a baby's head, or if you go look at the Greek Orthodox Church, they actually take the baby and dip its head and then its feet into the water three times, and sometimes keep it very long, and the babies look extremely frenetic. But nonetheless, they practice that form of baptism where on babies they somehow want to get them in touch with water. The low Anglican church, uh, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and those who belong to that, the Reformed persuasion, uh, they practice pedo-baptism. Pedo-baptism is not the same as infant baptism because they have different intentions. I'm not going to get that this morning. So our intention to preach these baptisms, we want to preach the baptism that is biblical as far as we understand the scriptures. But to understand there is infant baptism, there's pedo-baptism, both using water, and then Baptist churches, non-denominational churches as we are, and some Pentecostal and charismatic churches, they do, they do believer baptism or believer's baptism by immersion, also called credo or credo baptism. So just because it's a mode of water, and somebody says, well, we baptize with water, ask them, how do you baptize with water? Who do you baptize with water? When do you baptize with water? The water has got no magical uh, elements to it. It's simply a method that has been uh, given to us in the scriptures whereby we can identify with Jesus Christ, with his people, and with his word. Baptist, many of you have heard this before, baptized self, a word from which baptist has been transliterated, means to immerse, to place under, but is never you meant, never used in the scripture to mean to pour over. I'm going to go to a, a, a verse. I don't want you to get hung up on the theology of this verse, but I want you to, want to prove a point that when the Bible uses the word baptizo or any of its cognates, when the Bible speaks about baptizing in that sense, it cannot be used to mean to pour over. It always means to immerse. You can open your Bibles if you want to, to Romans chapter 6. We're not going to preach on this, but I want to use this as an example, which is an, 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 a record of a particular kind of baptism, but the word baptism is used here exactly as we would use it when doing water baptism. Romans 6, 14. What shall we say then? Romans 6, 1, 2, 4, rather. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Are we buried therefore with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? There's an author there, I'm not going to mention his name, who has actually written a book 
that says why baptism always means Peter baptism in the scripture. It's, this is not a stupid man. And we use him in some areas of, uh, of counseling. This is a, question, a statement which is astounding when here's one place where he's wrong. And if he's wrong here, then baptism is used in this way every else in scripture. Let me read this to you in this way and let me think about it. And in your minds, try and conceive what I'm saying. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Here's a picture. We are baptized into Christ. We are placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is not water baptism. This is spiritual baptism. And we are raised with him. Can you, can you imagine God trying to do that by sprinkling Christ over us? It's, a, it's, it's not even crazy. It's, it's, it's unthinkable. We cannot sprinkle Christ over us to make us his own. So therefore, this is one place where baptize means immersion. And wherever it's used and is cognizant in this form, it means immersion. What is the biblical and therefore the correct mode of water baptism? We teach that in the New Testament, baptism was carried out by putting the person who is being baptized completely under the water and then bringing him up again out of the water. And that very act of putting a person into a literal bath or swimming pool, the sea, a river, is a physical and a um, temporal way of us showing what actually took place in Romans chapter 6, where we were actually baptized into Christ and raised with him. So, baptism always means immersion. This is what is commonly known as believer or adult baptism by immersion. That has been my context for baptism, and I will go quickly, and we will get to the important parts about why we baptize the way we do. So, what does baptism mean? I'm going to give you a few uh, definitions, for lack of a better word, just to help you see that while these men who have penned these words all believe the same thing, baptism is such a, a um, I wouldn't say difficult to, to phrase, but one wants to be careful that you include everything when you say this is what baptism is. And that's sometimes a challenge. You want to make sure you don't miss out something that's important when you say this is what baptism is. And you don't want to add something that should not be there. So one wants to be careful how you phrase this is what baptism means. So I'm going to give you four different uh, well, definitions from four different sources. Um, in his basic theology, Charles Ryrie says this. Christian baptism means identification with the message of the gospel, the person of the Savior, and the group of believers. Absolutely right, but I think it's thin. I think he's, he's lost the opportunity of actually saying more to embed in this idea or this definition of baptism something that's real. Listen to this definition of baptism. Christian baptism, Christian baptism by immersion, is a solemn and beautiful testimony of a believer showing forth his faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, and his union with him, and his union with him in death to sin. And resurrection to a new life. It is also a sign of fellowship and identification with the visible body of Christ. Do any of you know where that comes from? Let me give you the, the reference. Living Your Bible Church <coughs> Statement of Faith. You've all read this, this, these words when you read the Statement of Faith before you became a member of the church. I'd like you to go back and read them over again. In fact, read the entire Statement of Faith over again and see what we believe. You may find you in the wrong church. Be warned. Don't judge a book by its cover or by, the, or by the beauty of its singing. The singing team may be selling us better than we do, but nonetheless. 
read the statement of faith and believe what you read. Here's another definition from a trusted source. This comes from uh, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew in their Biblical Doctrine, a systematic summary of Bible truth. Water baptism is the outward post-conversion demonstration of an inward reality that has already occurred at conversion. It not only signifies a turning away from sin, but also serves as a public affirmation of one's identification and union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Scripture presents baptism as the first step of obedience for all believers after they've embraced the Lord Jesus in saving faith. A brilliant definition. And I think we have tried to do that in this church by saying all of that in, I believe, a more succinct way. But nonetheless, who are we to argue with um, great men like MacArthur and Mayhew? We're not arguing. We're just saying that we're trying to make it more uh, digestible. Here's one which I think is actually a, one, uh, a definition which uh, does also ring home and rings home very true. Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord for which those who have repented and, become, and come to faith express their union with Christ in his death and resurrection by being immersed in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of belonging to the new people of God and an emblem of burial and cleansing, signifying death to the old life of unbelief and purification from the pollution of sin. Thus, is the, this is the um, quotation taken from What is Baptism and How Important Is It by uh, John Piper as it refers to the Bethlehem Baptist Church Elder Affirmation of Faith. So I've given you from various sources what baptism means. And as you will see, um, it's a struggle to make sure we include everything, leave it nothing, but nonetheless, we're all saying the same thing. There's only one baptism taught in the scriptures. It's baptism post-salvation in water, totally immersed as identification with Christ, his people, and his word. Why is baptism important? It identifies us, number one, with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Number two, it identifies us with his people. Number three, it identifies us with the, with the word and the gospel. That's why it's important. There may be other reasons you may think of, but these are essential to why, we, uh, why it's important. Look at it very quickly. Baptism by immersion identifies us with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. The New Testament makes no allowance for secret disciples. There is no provision for anonymous affiliation with the church of Jesus Christ. Association with Jesus was made public irrespective of the cost. The church in Jerusalem was filled with poor, starving Jewish Christians because they identified with Jesus Christ in a public display of baptism by immersion. They either got baptized in the baths all over Jerusalem or they got baptized in the Jordan River. And their families, because they were aware of this public display of association with Jesus Christ, their families ostracized them, leaving them penniless and astute, but still more were being saved and still more were being baptized in the face of, of being ostracized and being left penniless. The newly born body of believers in Jerusalem and surrounding areas were being ruthlessly hunted down and murdered by a relentlessly zealous Jew named Saul. And despite their numbers being decimated by persecution, newborn Christians were being baptized in full view of all and were daily added to the church. Being saved demands that you be baptized. The Bible makes no other provision for identification with our Lord and Savior. You say that you love your Lord and Savior and you 
or like him and want to be recognized as one of his, and you're not baptized, you are living a lie. Public acknowledgement of Jesus is essential in our relationship with him and his intercessory work. Matthew chapter 10 verse 32 says this, about our association with him, or our lack of association with him. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus wants to have this of you, that you're not ashamed of being associated with him. You will pay the price. We haven't in the Western world, but you may pay the price. We will pay the price. It may be poverty. It may be um, persecution. It may even be death. But it still doesn't give us the option of opting out. Secondly, baptism by immersion identifies with his people. There's a trend in churches today that reflects the desire of people to be affiliated to a church without being accountable to the saints that make up that church. They participate in the singing. They share in the fellowship. They enjoy the cake and tea and the, and the talk. They even enjoy listening to the word as though merely listening and not obeying has any value. If you're just listening and going out unchanged, you've wasted your time. You could do something much better with your time. They are kind of here, but not here. And somehow they have a sneaky suspicion that being baptized will result in a greater accountability to the church. They are dead right. The minute you become baptized, you're accountable to Christ in a public way, and you become accountable to the church. These people, they are content with being religious freeloaders. They are spiritual hangers-on, but not committed to being responsible and functional brothers and sisters. The Bible knows nothing about individualized Christianity. If you hear somebody says, I'm saved, but I don't believe in going to church, I sit on my couch at home and listen to John MacArthur, tell him, brother, you've got to get, get your head straight and your heart straight, because something is wrong. Listen to how Dr. Luke gives account of a baptism was a precursor to identification with God's people. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 to the church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. There is no misunderstanding. Luke, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to record this, is clear as to what it means to be part of the local church. It requires specific steps to take place in sequence so that it becomes a reality in life. Hear, God, hear the gospel, respond in faith, repent, get saved, get baptized, join the church, become functional. Simple as that. Not something hard to remember? Something you write on the back of a piece of paper and stick it on the windscreen and look at it every single day. Number three. Baptism by immersion identifies it with the word of God and the gospel. And this is probably at the heart of why people refuse to be baptized, even though they claim to be saved. They believe that once they are baptized, they will be required to walk more significantly according to the word. They have to stand up publicly and defend the gospel. Again, they are right, and that's what it means. But they figured out a workaround. As long as they are not baptized, then they are still only Christians on probation. I'm kind of halfway there. He's my savior, but not my Lord. I'm saved, but not quite sanctified. I am bought again, but need to not 
need to do something else. And so they're in this, in this state of in-between. I won't use the word limbo. You may just be, misunderstand me. But in some way in that netherworld, spiritually speaking, where they are saved, but not quite part of the life of being saved. There ain't no such thing. Absolutely not. They have the weird notion that while they are just saved, God will cut them some slack. But once they're baptized, they'll have to be more responsible. They somehow believe that while they are just saved, then their slip-ups as a Christian will be tolerated. But they need to be more sanctified, more spiritually equipped, a better Christian before they can be baptized as a Christian. Not only is that absurd, it's totally contrary to the Scripture. It is being in a dynamic relationship with their Savior, that's where they will gain their strength. It's by being in a realistic relationship with the saints that they will be edified and be built up. It's by having a meaningful relationship with the Word of God, desiring God's Word more than food itself, that they will grow in their sanctification. And all of this starts with being baptized immediately after salvation and taking up your responsibility as a soldier of the cross. I'm one of those who don't believe in waiting long for, for baptism. I don't see it in Scripture. I understand. I hear the reason why men say sometimes, well, we have to wait and see. Um, I don't know what they're waiting to see. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise in what we do, but if a person is truly saved and want to be baptized, you baptize them. If things go wrong, that's why we have Matthew 18. If a person is saved and not baptized and things go wrong, what are you going to do about it? They're not a member of the church. You can't discipline them. They walk out when they want to walk out. They've got no affiliation. They're just kind of wandering out there as a lone ranger. The minute they are baptized, as soon as they're baptized, they become one of the body, and they are not only accountable to us, but we are responsible for them. Simple. All this starts with being baptized immediately after salvation and taking up your responsibility as a soldier of the cross. Am I a soldier of the cross? A follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? In the next 17 minutes, I want to really take you to Scripture that's going to reinforce all that we said this morning. What, 14 minutes? All that I said this morning. I don't want to leave you with just my words to you, although I've tried to be as biblically based as possible. I want the Scriptures to open your mind to the understanding of what we believe. And I'm going to ask you to follow me. We're going to go to one book. We're going to stay in one book. And I'm going to show you from Scripture how not only do these verses support that baptism, water, baptism, immersion in water, post-salvation, which leads to identification with Christ and his people, is biblical. But in all of these verses, or in many of them, there are certain nuances to baptism that I think we need to recognize. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. We're going to stay in Acts because Acts is one book that gives us a, a tremendous amount and probably the most accounts of church-based water baptism and what it means to the church and why we do it. Acts 2 verse 38. Now we know Acts 2. This is Pentecost as has happened. Uh, Peter is speaking uh, about what's taking place. He's trying to clear the confusion. Uh, men are asking if these people are drunk, and he's saying, no, they're not drunk. Um, and then uh, as they're speaking to them, uh, he speaks to the Jews who have been guilty of just crucifying Jesus Christ and who are now hearing the gospel for the first time from a newly born church still in diapers. Uh, 
when they hear what Peter says, they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says this in verse 38. And Peter said to them, after Peter preached the word, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, and you will, never rec- and you will receive the gift of the, of the Holy Spirit. Remember here, uh, be careful of the phraseology. We won't unpack it now. I want you to just note the order. Repent and be baptized. Look down to verse 41. So those who received his word, the word that Peter had preached, that Peter preached, those who received his word, which led to their salvation, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here's the formula. They heard the word, they received the word, they repented, they were baptized, they were added. Right there, Acts chapter 2, the formula for what we do is stated clearly. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we have moved on from Jerusalem to Samaria. And we are now with a, an evangelist, uh, a man who was gifted as an evangelist, thanks Robert, uh, Philip. And, and, and Philip has a tremendous evangelic, evangelistic campaign taking place. And so he's taken um, into a place and brought face-to-face with the believers in Samaria, and it says in uh, verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people. So in Samaria there was this man who was a magician, and the Samaritans were taken up with him, and they paid attention to him, and they were amazed by his magic. And verse 12 says, but when they believed Philip, Philip came and preached the gospel to them. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized and continued. So again, though it may not be the same extent, there is this formula of word being preached, people believing, not only the Samaritans, but, but even Simon the magician, believed, being baptized, and then continuing with Philip. There's something very, very important to notice in this verse. Look at what Luke writes. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip and he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ, they were baptized, both men and women and the children. Right? No. It was one place where it was easy to sneak that in. It was here. Right here. It would have been easy to sneak in children because he's just identified. He didn't say just the whole house or the household. He said, and they were baptized, men and women. No children. Do you think there were children in Samaria? Do you think there were children amongst those groups? Do you think some fathers and mothers had the kids by their hands while they were listening to Philip preach? I'm sure they were. But only those who heard the word, those who responded to the word, those who believed, were baptized and continued. Verse 36. So the spirit snatches uh, Philip away and drives him into a, a road where he finds an Ethiopian eunuch so now the gospel's not only gone to Samaria, it's going to start going to Ethiopia from this point onwards. Nonetheless, he's a eunuch, and he's reading Isaiah, and he's uh, desperate to understand what it means. And so it says in verse 35 of Acts 8, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, Old Testament, which always already had, he never had Acts in his hand at that time, he told him the good news about Jesus. Verse 36, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see here, water. 
What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Holy, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went his way rejoicing. Well, there's no chance for this man to join the church. He's on his way home to serve uh, Queen Candace in Ethiopia. But here is a Christian going to a foreign country with a gospel, a newly baptized, newly saved believer who God uses to take the gospel far and wide. Note something very carefully. Again, this verse gives us some very uh, important insights into, into baptism. It says, and they both went down into the water, and they both came up out of the water. I want you to show me how you can do that by sprinkling somebody with water while they're standing up straight, hands behind the back. How they go down into that little bowl and how they get up out of the little bowl defies imagination. It's clear. Very means of baptism is about going down into and coming up out of both Philip and the eunuch. It requires bodily climbing into whatever is there that's deep enough to put the person underneath and bring them up as soon as you can. I'm a big facetious. Some people leave people down there for a long time, and it's not what we do. We baptize biblically. Chapter 9, verse 18. Chapter 9, verse 18. We all know this, and I won't spend much time here. This is Paul's conversion. Chapter 9 is Paul's conversion on the road to Tarsus. Uh, and uh, he is saved, uh, but not yet indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So this is still, remember, early days of the church. Uh, the Holy Spirit is working in a specific way, gradually uh, um, invading the lives of believers as they're being saved. We today don't wait for that kind of uh, Holy Spirit uh, baptism coming upon us. We are baptized when we are saved. But nonetheless... It says here, and immediately in verse 18 of chapter 9, scales from, from Paul's eyes, and he regained his sight, and he arose and was baptized. So Paul was first saved, baptized, and taking food was strengthened. So we see even in Paul's life, that act is exactly the same as everywhere else in the scriptures. Acts chapter 10. I'm going to go to these scriptures. I want you to see from scripture itself that what we teach is not something we have made up by ourselves. It's clear it's crystal clear for you to read and understand. Acts chapter, chapter 10. Um, here we find the Gentiles are hearing the good news. Peter is in Caesarea. He's been called by Cornelius. Uh, he's been, it's been clear, made clear to him that he needs to go to these Gentiles, uh, preach the gospel. And we know that from verse um, 37 down to verse 43, Peter preaches the gospel uh, and he tells them about the good news of Jesus Christ. He witnesses them and we find something happens. And verse 44 says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles and the Gentiles are included in the church of Jesus Christ in this New Testament church. For they were hearing him speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have, been, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain there for some days. Again, he preached. They, got, they were saved. They were baptized. And they immediately wanted to have association and fellowship with apostles who had come 
amongst them. Chapter 16, verse 11. We now have Paul and we see him ending up uh, in Ephesus and he's with um, Philippi rather and he comes to a river and there's a woman called uh, Lydia um, who was meeting around the river with some other women and Paul witnesses to them and Paul spoke to her and we find that the second half of his 14 says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul so the Lord was calling this woman the Lord had identified her as one who he had called. He calls her. He opens her, her heart. He softens her heart. He, he gives her understanding by giving her faith. And so he opens her heart and she pays attention to what this Paul said. Suddenly what Paul says drives home, resonates with her, and she gets saved. And after she gets saved, and after she was baptized in the household as well, she urged us, that's Paul speaking, saying, if you have... Judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here's a woman who, totally foreign to the Old Testament, hears the gospel, gets saved, immediately wants to be baptized, and immediately wants to have fellowship with God's people. In fact, we see how this ends at the end of the chapter. Uh, we go down the chapter and we find that not only does Paul meet the Lydia, but Paul is eventually thrown into jail. Paul and Silas are in jail. They're praying and singing. They're praying and singing the gospel. Now, I know that we want to hear you the gospel preached to us. But when we sing songs that are theologically sound, when we sing hymns that is um, pregnant with good doctrine, when we sing words uh, that are in the Bible and put them to music, that's as good as preaching in some cases where you may not be have the chance to actually verbalize the gospel of someone face to face. So be careful what you sing, think about what you sing, and make sure that when we sing something, it's not just to entertain or to make us feel nice. It's about presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ in song. Songs, spiritual songs, and that's how we can indeed share. And that's what Paul and Silas were doing. Because the jailer heard something. The jailer's life was changed. Somehow, Paul and Silas had witnessed him because he was changed. Verse 30, we know about um, uh, the, the, the earthquake, um, the jail shaken, and this jailer is in fear of, be, of losing his life because if the prisoners are gone, uh, his masters, his boss is going to kill him. So he says in verse 30, then, uh, verse 28, and the jailer called out for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear. He fell in before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Moses just asked to be saved from his master's uh, um, um, wrath. Uh, it was more than that, because it's very obvious what happens thereafter. Because Paul recognized what the salvation was. What was it do to be saved? And Paul said, or they said, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. It took them. The same hour of the night and washed the wounds, and he was baptized at once. No waiting. Baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought him up into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced along with his entire household as he believed in God. So he gets saved, he hears the gospel, he gets saved, he gets baptized, and he wants to pour in his house to continue this fellowship. A tremendous way 
of uh, seeing how baptism and salvation is important. Uh, verse 30. Verse 40. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So as Paul comes to Philippi, Lydia comes to salvation, is baptized. The jailer comes to salvation, is baptized. And the baptism that follows that uh, salvation not only identifies them with Christ, but they want to be identified with the people of God. Chapter 18 and verse 8. Falls in Corinth. Uh, and so we find that and he left there, uh, verse 7. Or let's leave from verse 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, just testifying to the Jews that Jesus or the Christ was Jesus, preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. And when they opposed and reviled him, he took out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Here we find a man who is, uh, uh, hears God's word um, and immediately is baptized. And look at verse 11, and they stayed a year and six months teaching the word amongst them. And so we find as we go through verse after verse after verse, we find that the same formula plays itself out. People hear the word of God being preached by those who are saved and baptized. They respond to the word of God by repenting and finding salvation. And they then are baptized immediately, become part of the church. And so they continue to do that which we are all called to do. They perpetuate the growth in the church by being baptized uh, and be part of the church. Acts chapter 19. The last reference, Acts chapter 19. Paul, uh, while uh, Paul was in, in Corinth, Paul is in Ephesus, so in Ephesus, and he says, and, and he meets up with uh, some disciples uh, who knew nothing about baptism, not this baptism. And Paul says to him, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no. No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were but twelve men in all. An important point here, again, we find exactly the same thing. These men would come to salvation, but had not been baptized, needed to be baptized. And Paul baptizes them. And as they are baptized, uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they are incorporated into the church. But there's an important thing to recognize right here. These men had already been baptized. They had uh, received the baptism of John. So they had already gone through actual dunking in water. This wasn't just sprinkling. They had a baptism that took place before the salvation. 
And yet, when Paul comes to him, Paul says, have you heard about Jesus Christ? And have you heard about this baptism? They said, no, we don't. And they are rebaptized. And this is significant. It means that any baptism that has taken place prior to your salvation does not count when it comes to being placed in the body of Jesus Christ and being part of the church and be identified with him. We've had this in our church many times where people who have been baptized say, I'm not sure I'm baptized or I have been baptized before I was saved or I'm not, sh- not clear. If there's any doubt that there was the baptism that took place before you were saved, if that's what you think has happened, doesn't count. Hence, infant baptism doesn't count. Any baptism by anybody else before them being saved doesn't count. Here are men who were devout men, disciples of John, they had been baptized, and yet Paul says, you need to be baptized in the way prescribed by the scriptures. And so we go to, time, to point and point, time and time again, we find that uh, the scriptures clearly show us uh, that baptism is not a non-essential. It's not something that we can have a debate over. It's not something that we are uh, able to say is negotiable. I want to be careful. I want to uh, leave with three things. I want to leave with three things in your mind. Number one, those of us who are saved, those of us who are baptized, and those of us who are members of this church and churches like this, need to be sure that we know why we are baptized, what it means, and able to defend that position. Now, I'm not saying that this is a point that we should divide from other believers on, but there can only be one right way. And so when someone says, well, I am a believer, uh, I have uh, received salvation the same that you have, but I believe in baptizing babies, uh, not for salvation, but to uh, secure them so that eventually they will be saved. And we say, no, you need to be baptized uh, after salvation. Only one of us can be right. And so while we may not want to divide on them as brothers, we want to be careful what we affirm by what we say and do in those cases. There's only one way. Only one way is right. That way is the way that the Lord has left for us in his word time and time and time again. The point of me going through the scripture, I want you to see for yourself that this is not something that living a Bible church does to make us different. This is what we do to make us the same like every New Testament church from Pentecost. What about those of you who are baptized but have no knowledge of your salvation? Those of you who have come through a church where baptism was done after a catechism class, after you've been confirmed. Those of you who come from a background where you are not exposed to the gospel and you were baptized and yet you were never saved. You have got no firm assurance of your salvation. If you don't have a firm assurance of your salvation, whatever baptism you were participating in has got no meaning. You need to lay before the Lord, to open your heart and your mind and seek out counsel so that you can find the right way of being baptized because of the right way of being saved. What about you who are here and you are saved and you are not baptized? For some reason, you think it is not required. For some reason, you think it is not necessary. For some reason, you think that as long as you remain unbaptized, as a secret disciple or as a probationary Christian or as one who is kind of making my way there, it's okay. It's not. It's a blatant act of disobedience. 
And every one of us needs to be careful that the things that we are disobedient in, we repent of. It could be this and it could be other things, but in your case it may be this. We need to repent of our disobedience. We need to find our way back to the cross. And we need to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, not our Savior only. And as we acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, we will obey him. We will subscribe to what he has left behind. He will, we will be identified with him in his burial, in his death, in his resurrection, in his persecution. We will be identified with his people who are subscribed to the same things. We will be identified with his gospel. And so we will be seen and known as Christians, little Christs, because we have been identified with him. And we are growing from glory to glory day by day as the word of God permeates our lives, changes our thinking, garrisons our minds and hearts, and makes us do that which is glorifying to him. May God give us grace to understand these distinctives. There will be more coming away. Be clear to listen to them, think about them. If you have any disagreement, we welcome your disagreement. We welcome you speaking to the elders and saying, well, this is not clear. I think this is different. I think you should be saying something else. We welcome those because it will give us a chance to engage for ourselves, to make sure that we are preaching and teaching the truth. We're not infallible. We make mistakes. We want to be clear, crystal clear that what we teach you, we believe ourselves, and is doctrinally and theologically and biblically sound. But please do not leave it, uh, leave it where it is. If you are indeed desirous of being baptized, if you are a believer, if you have been saved but never been baptized, saved recently, saved a long time ago, now's the time to, uh, to do that. Approach us and we'll be happy to baptize you. Don't worry about saying, well, maybe when it's 10 or 15 or 20. Pools are already full, not being used. We'll use them as cold as they are. Do not leave this uh, aside because this is not a negotiable issue. This is not something that is uh, optional. This is not something that is of secondary importance. It's as important as your salvation, not because it leads to salvation, but because of what it says about your salvation and about the rest of the Christian walk while they're here below. May God give us all grace to do that which is glorifying to him for his name's sake. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for the way you have indeed saved your people. We pray you may give us wisdom in understanding your word, applying it in our lives, and living for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.